Actually, we're going to bounce uh, to a couple or three of the Gospels today because this story is in three of them. We're going to see them. Uh, pray with me this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, calm our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would allow your word uh, to be what is spoken this morning, that you would allow uh, your truths and your scripture uh, to impact hearts and minds and draw people close to the goodness of God and the glory of God. Jesus, you are worthy. And more than our lives need anything else, they need to reflect you. They need to reflect your relationship with the Father to be close and attached. They need to reflect your relationship with the Holy Spirit, always, always going in the same direction. Our lives need to do those things. We need access to our Heavenly Father. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We need to obey and draw in. We need to listen to His words about you and your goodness and your glory. And God, this morning, I just pray that you would take your word and that you would plant seeds that bear fruit in the next five minutes, in the next five years, in the next 50 years in our church and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been watching the life of Jesus. We've been reading through the stories. We've been going through some of his interactions with people, uh, some of his, his interactions with both the good and the bad, the godly and the evil, and we're watching these things play out. Today, you and I are going to see uh, really something a little bit different. Uh, it's an amazing answer to a prophecy that he makes in one of the passages that we'll talk about, but we're going to be in the transfiguration. Where have we been the last couple of weeks? Well, in Matthew 16, if you go back and read through it, you're going to see some of what we've talked about. But you don't want to miss those that Jesus leaves. I told you a couple of weeks ago, who are the people that Jesus walks away from? The prideful, the arrogant, the demanding. He's not dealing with the religious that think they have no issues, those that don't believe in grace, those that don't think they need to give grace, those that uh, don't think they need grace. The Bible's clear. God deals with the humble. He deals with the humble before salvation, that moment that you and I uh, draw in and call on him to be our Savior. The moment you and I acknowledge him as Messiah is not one of pride. It is one of intense humility. It is one of need. And then after that, the Christian operates with God the same way forevermore. You and I operate with him in the realm of humility. He is good. He is loving. He is kind. And you and I have needs that only he can fulfill. Things that we ask and things that we thank Him for, that's the prayer life. And so for you and I to be close to the Lord, we have to maintain humility. We see Jesus uh, very hard-nosed against the religious, the righteous, the prideful, and the demanding. And in that passage in in Matthew 16, He just walks away. To me, it scares me just to even read that passage. You might miss what he's doing. What if physically your body, your, your heart, your mind, if things are out of whack, you may miss what the Lord is doing. We've told it a hundred times here, you know, the acronym that, that Charles Stanley gave, HALT, to stop. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, if you are physically dealing with one of those things, doesn't matter your age, 15, 85, slow down, try to get right, try to listen just a little bit more for what the Lord is doing because there's always static in the message if you and I physically are not feeling the way we need to feel. And then you can't miss what? You cannot miss who he is, who he claims to be. Not not who you think he is, not who your parents think he is, not who this church thinks he is. One day you will give an account for what you think about him, who he is. You cannot miss that question. 
You can't miss that idea. That is the piece that separates sheep and goat. That's the piece of judgment that brings us into his kingdom or into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It comes down to that one question. Who do you and I believe Jesus to be? Is he just a good man or is he just a good teacher? That's not the bar. Is he Messiah, the anointed one, the one that has come to make us right with God, the perfect one that has paid my penalty of sin on the cross? Is he is the one whose righteousness I am coattailing in on, or do I just think I need a little bit of help? Like I'm pretty, like I'm 98% of the way there. Jesus just gives me like a 2% boost. I'm making it. Right? Or are you and I the broken beggar? The broken one weeping and crying that, man, we are evil and wicked and we need a Savior. We need mercy and forgiveness. That is the answer to the question of who Jesus is. He's not a self-help and he's not a little boost. He is Messiah, the anointed one. He is the one that lived a perfect life so that you and I could enter into God's presence and be a part of God's family. Matthew 16, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Upon this rock, meaning the man, the message, and men. What is he meaning in that passage? I think there's three meanings, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Blessed are you that's not been given to you by flesh. That was given to you by my Father. And upon this rock, I will build my church. What rock is that? Well, the rock of the message the message that's going to be given to Peter to go out into the world of who Jesus is and what he has done. The rock of the man, who Christ is. He is the cornerstone that all things will be built off of. Scripture says that those that fall against him will be broken and rebuilt, but those he falls upon will be destroyed utterly. Meaning if you and I lean into who Christ is, he is going to build our life and put it in proper standing. He's going to build his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And he's going to use broken men to do it. The ecclesia, this body, will be built by Jesus, built on his truths and his person. If it's built on anything else, it will crumble. If it's built on good music, if it's built on a good time, if it's built on a, a good speaker, if it's built on fun, if it's built on pizza, it doesn't matter if you're building it for 10-year-olds or you're building it for 100-year-olds. If it's not built on Jesus and his truth, the truths of this word, it will eventually crumble. And the demise is usually horrible. Why? Because this building and this idea of church is supposed to represent God to the world. So when we fail and when we are broken why, or when churches do fail or when they are broken because they have deviated from Christ or deviated from Scripture, what they leave behind is just chaos and brokenness. They give a lot of people excuses not to believe what Scripture has to say. When technically, if you just had five minutes to study what went on, you would find out that that church didn't believe what Scripture had to say either. So they built on something different. The charisma of a man, the, the beauty of, of good music, uh, a wonderful facility. They built on anything other than Jesus himself, his truths, his person. And what's going to happen with the building of that church? It's going to be done by fallen people. Aren't you glad this morning that your life has more of a meaning than you can ever comprehend? I don't care if you're the CEO of the biggest business in the world or you do the most menial task on a daily basis. Your life has more meaning then whatever it is, that job you're called to, why? Because us broken people, God is using to build this church. 
And if you take it one step further, you figure out something even more amazing than that. He is using you and I to change eternity. Every person brought into the kingdom is changing what comes next. And that is an amazing idea. You were brought into the kingdom by someone else. And in that moment, God used them to build and make the church and to build and make eternity. Is that an amazing thought? You look at something like VBS or teaching the kids. If you and I see that the way it's properly understood, if you and I look at going into the school system and being part of certain things that we can still get in for, if you look at how you love your neighbor or how you love the worker at the Exxon or the dollar store, if you and I see it with that idea in mind, things in life get not only uh, a little more blessed to do, the menial tasks get blessed to do, but they also get way more important. Your time becomes infinitely more valuable when you figure out what you're actually working toward and who is actually using you. What kind of church does he build? This is what we talked about last week. He builds an invading, authoritative, a misunderstood, opposed, a sacrificial, a rewarded, and a victorious church. Matthew chapter 16. In order to do that, he's going to build. This creation is going to take a group of people initially starting the church that have all of their eggs in the eternal basket. We talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school. These books were written by people that actually saw a resurrected Jesus. Their life and their faith is a little bit different than ours. We can get there and we mature into those places where our faith looks like theirs, but if you're Peter writing First and Second Peter, or you're Matthew writing the story of this gospel, or you're James writing that we need to um, be grateful, be thankful for our persecution, you're doing so having had lunch, had breakfast, shaken hands, embraced in a hug, not Jesus as a living person, but Jesus as a resurrected Savior. It is a different level. And in order to create that, God is going to give these people a different experience. Matthew chapter 17 is one of those different experiences. The goal is to see his glory. Read the passage with me. You're going to be really familiar with the story by the time we finish today. Because nothing this morning is super deep. But we're going to go into, we're going to repeat the story. And we're going to see intimacy with Jesus through his glory in each of these passages. Read with me, Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. The first thing in order to see the glory of God, we have to be intimate with Jesus. We have to know him, to love him, and there will be times that by yourself, you and you alone, are going to be doing business with the Lord. He is going to have you in a place by yourself. You say, well, I'm married. That can't happen. It absolutely can happen. You say, I've got kids. That can't happen. It absolutely can happen. I go to a church. I go to a good church. You and I are going to be at times singled out with God in the middle of something with Jesus that only you and him are partaking in, whether it's your prayer closet, whether it's a trial, whether it's the next hospital bed you have to lay in. You're going to be there with him by yourself. 
whether it's you opening the Bible in the morning before everybody gets out of bed or at night when everybody goes to bed, and it's just you and him reading. In order for you and I, when we see the glory of God, when we get to see the glory of Jesus Christ, we're going to do so uh, as a piece of our intimacy with him. You see, those that, don't, those that see his glory that are not intimate with him, you know who they end up being? His enemies. And that's a really scary thought. I believe it's like Revelation 19-ish. When he pulls the sky open and comes riding in on the white horse, they see his glory, but they do so as an adversary. You and I get to see his glory in the intimacy of friendship, in the intimacy of our Messiah. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up on the mountain by themselves. Why? He has something special for them. It's going to help buoy and anchor the rest of their life. As he was transfigured before them and his his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard uh, this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that uh, first Elijah must come? We're going to stop right there for now. We're going to go into it again here in just a minute. So what happens? Well, Matthew 17, verses 1 to 10, this is an amazing prophecy fulfilled. Okay? You say, what prophecy is that? Well, look back in chapter 16 right at the end. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The very next passage is what? It is the fulfillment of that idea. Why? Because Jesus didn't come and set up his kingdom. So in order for him to say something like that, he has to have another picture in mind. So what happens, the very next passage is what? The transfiguration. And so Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus to learn something, to pray, to have some quiet time, whatever is going on. And all of a sudden, they look up and they see Jesus and his glory reunited. What a special, special moment. Verses 1 through 3 are going to show us what? That intimacy with Jesus brings a vision of his glory. You will see him rightly and you will also see what? You will also see those that are operating with him rightly when you and I see the glory of Christ. It's one of the reasons why you can't love the Jesus that is and despise the church. You can't love Jesus as he is, as he claims to be, as he has revealed himself. You cannot love the Lord as he claims to be and despise the people that he has called to do his work. We can despise some of their actions. And you know what? If you and I are doing church properly, what we figure out is those actions lessen in severity and nastiness and evil when you and I are doing what we are told to do, which is what? Take care of the church. Confront sin and wickedness. You know what removes hypocrites from a church? When you and I get tired of our own sin, and so we start loving people properly 
and holding them to biblical standards. You can't do it until you and I are tired of sin and weakness and, and spiritual uh, issues in our own life. We cannot do this properly unless we deal with ourselves first. But once you and I are tired of living that way, we can start to love and draw into the community of God the way we we're supposed to when we confront sin. Not a difference of opinion. We don't do hearsay. We don't do anonymous tips. We do face-to-face loving confrontation when things don't match Scripture. And it has nothing to do with the color of the carpet, right? Or whether somebody was you know, kind of mean to you or whatever else. Like We deal with those things properly. But when it comes to sinful interactions... We interact, we work through them, and we protect the body. We protect each other. We protect our children from growing up in a church that is not operating the way it's supposed to. You see, we cannot love Christ as he really is and despise those that he calls to himself. Verses 4 and 5, you'll see him rightly with respect to the Father. We're going to see him rightly in relationship with us, with others, and then we're going to see him rightly in relationship with the Father. And I love verses 6 to 10 in this one. When you and I see his glory, we'll fall in holy fear. If Don't take the things of God and make them mundane a doormat, normal. Like there needs to be some reverence in respect for the things of God and who he is. Why? Because the moment you and I actually see him, the moment you and I actually enter into his presence, and we'll talk about it further as we go on, but sometimes it can be even in the presence of other people. It can be in prayer. It can be in a time of the word. It can be in a time of worship. When his presence enters in, there's something in you and I that is just weighed down, crumbled. There should be a healthy dose of fear there. It's an awe, a reverence. When they see Jesus as he is, they're not standing there slapping him high five. These are the ones that he has called to be his disciples. They know him, they love him, and yet they fall down in holy fear. There's a picture there in salvation. Why? Because who is the one that lifts him up? Well, we see in holy fear, now we deal with holy mercy. When Jesus is the one to grab them, lift them to their feet, bring with them a sense of calm, a sense of, of, of peace again with him. So if we're going to see his glory or when we see his glory, we're going to see it in intimacy, we're going to see it with a holy fear, and we're going to see it with a beautiful Beautiful, heavenly, glorious mercy. Turn over to Mark chapter 9 with me. Now we're going to see from Peter's perspective, who was Mark? Mark was the secretary of Peter. So later on in life, as, as the, the gospel of Mark is written, most people will tell you this is the account of, of Peter, given to Mark, who put it to paper for him. The transfiguration is in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 again. He said, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no man on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah and Moses. 
And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying, for they were terrified. And a a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no longer uh, saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, Peter sees the glory. I love the idea that this is from his perspective. Why? Because he's awestruck. Like this firsthand story. Matthew wasn't there. Matthew tells the story from someone else's perspective too. But we know that Mark and Peter are attached. And so we can say, man, Peter was there. What was it like to be there? To see his glory is to see something out of this world. You can't mistake it. It can be denied. You can deny Christ his glory. It doesn't change whether or not he is glorious. But we can give his glory to something else. We can, we can slough it off to something else. You know, that wasn't a big deal or it was just this or it was just that. Or you and I can see the Lord at work and honor him for who he is and what he was doing. What they saw on that mountain, no earthly thing could make happen. And what happens to Peter? He's awestruck. I love verse 6, for he did not know what to say. Can you imagine? Like Peter's telling Mark this story, right? And he's like, man, we looked up, and there's Jesus. Like we, we come up to pray, and now we're seeing Jesus, and everything's changed, and he's radiant, and he's so white you can't even see. He is bright. His clothes are amazing. And I just started talking. How many people are like that? Like, I am so uncomfortable right now, I'm just going to talk. Right? And that's Peter. I, I didn't even know what to say. I just started talking. Lord, I'm just, we're just going to build three tents. And, and it's like, man... God himself had to tell him, just be quiet for a second. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I love the idea that this is Peter's account. Why? Because it gives a little more detail as to what was going on. He didn't even know what to say. But he was going to say something. Why? Because he's Peter. And some of us have that syndrome where we can't keep our mouth shut. It is to be awestruck with what is going on. Friends, you can see and experience this same thing right now in your life and in mine. The Holy Spirit can come over places, in times, private or together. And honestly, we need to see those moments more. It's one of the greatest cravings of all of humanity is to see God work and then to have the the spiritual sight to recognize it and to lean in and go toward it. You and I can experience the same kind of thing now. When's the last time uh, a song in worship or, or some of the word that you were reading just hit you to the point where you were just awestruck? Or when's the last time you saw God working in somebody else's life? Listen, friends, this is why I can't, I can't tell you enough. You have to tell people your story. Whether it's struggle or blessing, sometimes what you tell them will be exactly what they need to hear. Does God still work because it feels like it's been a long time since he's worked in my life? And then you come along 
with your story of pain and struggle that he saw you through or your story of blessing that he keeps opening doors for you. We have to tell stories to each other. We need to see this, to experience this. And when we're not experiencing it for ourselves, we need to remember or to realize or to see someone else that is. And at a bare minimum, you and I get to go home and say, Lord, if you're interacting with them like that, why do I not, why do I not feel it? And we don't run on feeling. We run on truth. But every once in a while, it's nice to have some passion built into this when you and I see or experience the glory of God and cannot escape it. We need that. We cannot mistake what is going on. Peter is awestruck. Verses 7 and 8, to see his glory is to see only him. What happens when Jesus wakes them up? He's the the only one there. He's the only one there. One of the anchoring pieces of the Christian life is that if all you have is the Lord, he is enough. Now, most people will never have to experience that for a prolonged period of time. It's just not the way God built us, and I don't believe he wills that for many people. But there will be moments in your life for five minutes, five days, five months. It's going to be you, and it feels like everything else is falling apart. Everyone else is falling apart. It's going to be you and him. And the greatest Christian truth we can give to the world is he is enough. When every answer to a good prayer request is yes, that's the idea. Jesus is there. He is enough. He is strengthening you, preparing you. He is loving you. The intimacy between you and him is enough to keep you going. Verses 9 to 10, to see his glory is to obey his word. How do you keep your mouth shut in the middle of seeing something like that? I don't know, but the Bible says they did. And why did they do that? Because Jesus said, don't tell anybody until you see me resurrected. Like, you know, Peter's got a problem with that already. He already just showed you. Don't tell anyone until I am resurrected. And what do they do? They obey. They obey. Like, this is the greatest thing the world has ever seen. Like, I I need to tell somebody, but I can't. They obey. Second Peter, he would recall the story again. To see his glory is to desire others to see it too. And what does he say in Second Peter chapter 1? He basically says something like this. We have beheld his glory. We have seen this happen. We are not believing fables or fairy tales. We are delivering to you what we have seen. And because we have seen it, we want to share it. We want to share what we have seen. We want to share what God has done. If God is not working for you or in you, there's nothing to share. What do you have that the person next door doesn't have? As a Christian, what do we have that draws people in? What do we have that makes us different or peculiar is the work of God in our life, in our hearts, uh, and then through our lives. To see His glory is to desire others to see it too. We see not to hoard what God is doing, but to share it. You and I see and behold the glory of Jesus to share it with others that they may see it too. Why? Because it is the one thing that they need in their life. They don't need a pay raise. They don't need a better job. They don't need a nicer house. They don't need a nicer car or another car. They don't need that spouse that they think they need. They don't need any of that stuff. The one thing they need is the glory of God on their life through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
And if you and I can be a part of delivering that to the world, you will have done your mission. You will have blessed more people than you will ever understand if we share what the Lord is doing in us and he does it through us. Finally, scroll over one more time, Luke chapter 9. The intimacy of Jesus. What happens when we see his glory? What happens when we see who he really is? Verse 28, chapter 9, verse 28 says this. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray, verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men who were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of what? His departure. Why? Because they both have a vested interest in what is getting ready to happen. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. If you and I are going to see Jesus in his glory... Why were they going up to the mountain? They were going up to the mountain to pray. If my house is to be called a house of prayer, what do you think you and I should be doing? Praying. That's why I try to focus in and try to remind you all so often that when we're singing these songs as we start the time, it is prayer. If you read the lyrics, if you know the lyrics, if you're reading through them and talking through them between your heart and the Lord, what are you doing? You're praying. If you and I are just mouthing them, right? I mean, you can, you can mouth them and not say them and still be praying as long as your heart means them. Or you can say them and not be paying attention and be doing nothing but filling the air with more noise. Are we praying in those moments? Are we really praying as we start or finish or when someone says they need prayer? You know, one of the easiest things to do four or five years ago, I started doing this. Whenever somebody asks you to pray for them, just pull them aside and start praying. Because you know how easy it is to say yes to that and then forget later? Yes, let's, yes, I will pray for you. And then like it's six days later and you're like, ooh, I didn't pray. Right? Just pull somebody aside and start praying. Like, what are you doing? Well, you're talking to God on their behalf. It's not that hard. Don't overthink it. Lord, you're good. You're loving and kind. I'm an idiot. Help me. Amen. Now, let's start praying for you. Right? I'll go first. Pray for me. I'm a mess. Right? Pull them aside. Start praying for them. But it'll, the first couple people, it throws them way off, though. They're not expecting it. Right? We, if we are going to see the glory of God, we're going to have to be people of prayer. Now, two things drive me into prayer. My needs or my thankfulness. Both are humility-based. Prayer is an invitation. Prayer is intimacy. Prayer is worship. It is walking into the throne room of God. The Bible would say eagerly with expectation that you're going to be seen. 
Walk into the White House and expect to be seen. Right? Let's see what happens. Walk into the Capitol. Right? Pick the highest ranking person there and expect to be seen. Right? Now, if it's Dean, you got a pretty good shot. Just walk in. Put your feet up on his desk. I'm sure it'll be fine. Right? Listen. Walk in with the expectation to be seen and see what happens. You're going to get escorted out. Probably in a position that's uncomfortable. Right? And then you go to the God of the universe. Come boldly. Expecting to be seen. Prayer is an invitation. It is intimacy. It is worship. And every time you and I pray... It bows our heart and our will into a position God loves to bless because either you're doing two things. Lord, thank you for the things I couldn't give myself. Thank you for health today or purpose today. Thank you for answering this prayer. Thank you for this person. Thank you for that person. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my children. Thank you for the blessings you have poured out. Thank you for the hope of a future. Like it's all of these things that you couldn't do on your own. Or, God, I need you man, I am needy right now. I am broken. My heart hurts. My mind hurts. I'm sore. I'm tired. I'm lonely. I'm without. If you don't come through, I'm in trouble. Do you see how these humble moments bring you and I right into the position that God loves to bless? He doesn't cast away humble people. The humble and contrite of spirit find God. They're going up on this mountain to pray, and in that, they're going to see something glorious. What happens in verse 30 and 31 is this. You and I are going to see Jesus in his story, in his proper story. You're going to see the glory of God and what he come to do on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yes, they're also going to see it on the Mount of Ascension here shortly. But you know what's between there? The Mount of Calvary. They're going to see the glory of God in the brokenness, in the pain, as well as the transfiguration and the ascension. And they're talking about what Jesus is getting ready to accomplish. They're talking about his departure from Jerusalem. Why? Moses and Elijah have a vested interest. Why? Because their sins are yet to be covered by the blood of Christ. If God is telling them the story of what Jesus is going to do in some manner, some fashion, like you can dive into this idea, what was the Old Testament paradise like versus heaven itself. But we know this, God can't dwell with sin. Old Testament saints died in faith that God was going to provide their covering. They died in that faith. Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is in paradise, Abraham's bosom. The rich man is being tormented, but they can see each other. I believe there's a different place there, that that the Old Testament saints weren't in God's presence, weren't in heaven yet like you and I know it. Why? Because their sins had just been covered, not washed away. And so Moses and Elijah show up, and they're speaking with Jesus about what he is going to accomplish. They're speaking with Jesus about what they had said in their life that they didn't 100% understand. How they pointed to the Messiah and what was getting ready to happen. Maybe Moses is talking about the bronze serpent that had to be lifted up, and when the people of God looked at the serpent, right, they were healed. Remember that story? Maybe he was talking about that. Who knows? But they have a vested interest in what is getting ready to happen, and so they're talking about how Jesus is getting ready to redeem them 
and us. How he is getting ready to take captivity captive and bring men on high, to bring men into the presence of God. You're going to know his glory when you see it in his mission, not just the good stuff, but the hard stuff. Friend, you and I are going to see the glory of God on our life when we realize that as we wake up today and the road that is set before us, God has ordained and we need to walk it with joy and we need to walk it with purpose. And the things that happen, they happen. And it's hard and it's horrible sometimes or it's blessed and it's wonderful sometimes. They both are there so that you and I are walking in the purpose and the mission of God and you will see his glory right there. Your circumstances do not have to change for God to use you to draw you close, or to make you a ministry and a mission for someone else. Don't fall into that trap. You don't need more money to be doing the will of God. You don't need a better job. You don't need better friends. You need to be faithful with where you're at, with what you're handed today, and do it to the best of your ability. Do it to honor God. Whatever you want for me today, Lord, my hands are open. Take what you will, give what you will, but put me on mission to know his glory is to see it in his mission and verse 32 to see his glory is to feel it in spiritual weight they are wore out and again this idea of this holy awe this heaviness to who God is and how our physical bodies cannot really deal with it very long the weight of God weighs in. If you ever talk to someone or, or, or you deal with someone that teaches a class or whatever else, watch how they operate after it is over or what has happened. Or if you're talking to someone that's an evangelist or, or any kind of spiritual service, talk to them after it's done when it's time to rest and figure out and see how tired they are. Why? Because the weight of God sits in those moments and wears them down. And it's just God's glory. It's hard, it's amazing, it's wonderful, it's important, it's serious. The disciples are weighed down to the point, they don't even know what they're saying. Peter's just talking. He's uncomfortable and, and babbling. The glory of God sits heavy wherever it lands. It brings fear, worship, praise. Friends, it brings focus and it brings a need of mercy. And it takes our needs and here's the, here's the piece that I want you to see. This glory of God is a need on our life, but when you and I are dealing with it properly, it becomes the greatest desire of our life. Elijah needed it. Moses asked to see it in Exodus 33. Show me your glory, God. Show me your glory. And God obliges his request with some conditions so he doesn't kill the man that he needs to use. Remember that story? Pushes him in the cleft of the rock. God says, you're not going to see my face. Why? Because you'll die. But I will come by and you can see my back. Unbelievable. What did Elijah need when he was running for his life? He needed the glory of God to fall on him in power and provision. And that is exactly what happens in 1 Kings 19. God asked him a question. What's wrong? He's not prepared to answer. And so all of this stuff happens in Elijah's life. There's the, the, the earthquake and all these other things. And then the still small voice of God asks him again, what are you doing here? And he says, and he wraps his face up and he covers it. Why? Because he knows he's on holy ground. He is fearful. The glory of God is close. And then he gives his petition. It's an amazing story of God's graciousness and goodness. 
He says, Lord, I alone am the one doing all this stuff. And that's when God tells him a little bit later, like, listen, I got many, many others that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You need a nap. You need some food. You need to go on, right? You've seen that Facebook thing floating around? It's hysterical, right? Elijah said, I want to die. And God said, you need a nap and some food. Now get back to work. That's a pretty good one. Don't underestimate the power of a nap and a delicious meal. What the disciples longed for to see the glory of God, to see the good news and the greatness of Jesus is going to become their deepest desire. Our deepest need is the same. And when we experience that need, it can become our consuming desire. Our lives, as they come this morning to play, should be this, to see the glory of God fall on us and then to be used and to go through us. You'll never do anything more impactful with your life. Don't care what your job is. Don't care what your bank account is. Don't don't care what inheritance you leave. Don't care how many buildings or how many signs they put up in your honor when you're gone. Me neither. The greatest inheritance you will leave as you go, the greatest change you will make as you go is to be a life where the glory of God resides on it and then comes through it and touches others, your family, your church, your community, your job. You will impact things. You will impact people that you don't even know are watching. And that need, when we wake up tomorrow on Monday morning, needs to be our desire, the consuming desire of your life to see the glory of God and to be part of it that other people may see it too. To see his glory is to eventually become his glory. What do I mean by that? Would you stand with me as they play? What I mean by that is simply this. When you and I see his glory... We can't help but be drawn into it, that kind of intimacy, that kind of love, that kind of relationship. And then what happens? Somebody sees it in you and they point to him. So if you and I desire to see his glory, eventually we will become the vessel he uses to show other people it. How you interact with them will change drastically. You come this morning if you don't know that Savior.